average person or you ask somebody who's, who's a part of a church that primarily emphasizes song singing, what worship is, their primary answer is going to be singing. But what we want to do here is emphasize that the whole Sunday service is a worship service. From the very first prayer and call to worship to the very last benediction and commission. There's a reason behind it. And the second reason why we wanted to do this is because what we want to do in our Sunday service is clearly exemplify the gospel. So we want to start off with adoration, praising God's name for simply who he is. I mean, that's not a simple task, but we want to praise his name for who he is. And then we want to be led into a time of confession, of acknowledging, God, you are God, and quite frankly, I'm not. After that, we want to come before God with a thankful heart, understanding and realizing what he has done for us. He's purchased us back into his family by sacrificing his son. That's amazing. And so we want to do that by singing songs of thanks, but we also want to do it with, with giving, our, our offering. We, we give back because of a cheerful, thankful heart to God. Then after Thanksgiving, we, we also want to, we want to pray because when you have a relationship with God, when you have been reconciled back to God, you've got access to talk to the God of the universe. And so why would you not talk to him, right? And so this morning, what we are looking at is the instruction aspect of it, the, the, um, the, the preaching aspect of it. And yes, um, basically what this is this morning is what I'm going to be doing is, is teaching on instruction or maybe simply put, I'm teaching on teaching. Uh, that joke really fell flat. Um, okay, I thought like that would have been funny because it's like, oh, it's going to be a boring sermon, something like that. I don't know. But anyway, uh, I'm going to be teaching on instruction. Why is it crucial that instruction is part of the Sunday service? Believe it or not, instruction is one of the threads throughout history of the church that has always been there. Throughout history, it's always been there. Well, I was even this morning while I was meditating on this passage, one of the very first things that God does with Adam and Eve is instructs them. This land I have given to you, be fruitful and multiply. He's instructing him right, he's instructing Adam and Eve right there. I mean, instruction is so crucial to the fabric of the church that, that in um, the, the uh, medieval times and, and the mid-centuries, as the church started to decline, as, as the, the Roman Catholic church started to make its presence, one of the very first things that they started doing is getting rid of being able to preach in the common language. They would only preach in Latin. So there'd be a Latin, just think of this, a, a Latin sermon in Germany, a Latin sermon in London. They couldn't hear what was going on. They couldn't be instructed. But as soon as uh, 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 Martin Luther and, and the boys started the, the Reformation and started making the Word of God and the instruction as important, a great revival started to spark. And we see that throughout history, actually. As there is the emphasis on instruction, the Word of God, God starts to move because God moves through His Word. And so what we're seeing this morning is, is one verse, but a very important verse for us. 
Paul is writing to Timothy in 2 Timothy to hold fast, to continue on in his faithfulness. He's telling Timothy, you, you've seen all of the persecution I've been through. You've seen my faithfulness to God. And, and Timothy, don't, don't be alarmed, but bad people and imposters will only continue to get worse. But Timothy, remember what you were taught as a child. Remember the teaching that you have learned. Remember, Timothy, starting in verse 16, that all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Father, I ask this morning that what you would do is you would allow us to be instructed by your Word. And that through... um, through this instruction, you would strip me of my pride. You would strip me of, of anything um, extra biblical or, or whatever you want to call it that I, I would want to say. And you would allow me just to humbly submit to your word and teach what your word says because your word is a lot more powerful than my word. And so I ask that you would soften hearts, you would open ears, and that what you would do this morning is cause a deep hunger for your word. That people would want to be instructed by you. So I pray this in your son Jesus name. Amen. A few weeks ago I had mentioned uh, a couple of statistics. I don't know if you remember the statistics at all. But it was talking. What, what I was, what I was um, showing is that how Wisconsin is actually not as Christian as what we think it is. It's ranked uh, 44th out of 1 through 50 on um, most Christian being number 1, least Christian being uh, 50. It was ranked 44. Wisconsin was ranked 44. Now on, on that same website, Pew Research, what they do is they go through and they actually show statistics of then how many Christians, um, obviously you're probably saying right now, I didn't, I wasn't ever asked to, to do this statistic, that's, to, that's probably wrong. Um, Pew Research is one of the most accurate statistics for, for religious studies that, that's out there. So, so I, I put my, my faith in them a little bit, but not fully, because I know statistics are a bit skewed, but... But anyway, what Pew Research does is it goes down the line. Those who have belief in God and then it has um, uh, on the one side it is very much so. On the other side is not at all. And then it goes down through different things. How often you attend church. How often you pray. How often you read scripture. How often you um, uh do this or that. And one of the statistics that struck out to me that was really just striking was the comparison between those that claim to have faith in God, but then those that read Scripture. Because those that read Scripture throughout the week said 55% of people being asked, how often do you read Scripture, said seldomly, never. Now, I, I, I don't want to just assume that 55, that half of, so like we cut it down the middle, this half seldomly never reads, that half seldomly does read. I, I don't know. I, I don't want to assume that. But I, 
I do think that there is this kind of struggle with us Christians to really get into the Word of God. I, I think we, we sometimes think, well, I, I just can't comprehend it. I'm not smart enough. I don't have a degree. I don't understand these names or I don't have time or, or this and that. But really what's, what's crying out from our heart is, well, what does Scripture, an old ancient book, have to offer me? At the end of the day, that's really the, the question for those that don't read scriptures. What does this ancient book, this, what does the scriptures, this ancient book, have to offer me? My marriage is a wreck. I have, uh, I've lost all of my friends. I don't really like where I work. It's leading me to depression. My marriage is a wreck. What does this book that is outdated, irrelevant, not up to times, have to offer me? I would say that this outdated book is actually very relevant and has a lot to offer us. You see, in our passage this morning, what we are are realizing or, or what we are seeing is that Paul is saying that Scripture can actually profit you. Now I'll get to that in a little bit, but what Paul is saying and what we will see is that Scripture profits us in four ways. Four ways that Scripture profits us. And it's this. Scripture profit, profits us in teaching. It profits us in reproof, correction, and training in righteousness. Well, how is this so? So what I'm going to do this morning, I want to just lay it flat all in front of you so you know where I'm going. What I'm going to do this morning is I'm going to look at three of these ways that we profit from Scripture. And I'm going to show us, or what I'd like to show us is how this has always been the case for Scripture. How it's always profited us. But then what I want to do is I want to go back through those three things and show us um, three warnings. So I'm going to hit on teaching, reproof, and correction. And I just want to quickly show us how, how we can profit from that. But then I want to warn us with three different warnings. But before we can get to teaching, reproof, and correction, Paul doesn't start with that. Paul starts by telling Timothy, all scripture is breathed out by God, which is incredible. This is an incredible statement that Paul is making. See, Paul is not saying here that Scripture was inspired by men. Paul is saying that Scripture was inspired by God Himself. Everything that we have written down in the Word of God is because God spoke it. He wanted it in the Word. He wanted us to know it, to read it, to believe it, to memorize it. Every single thing that we have in here is perfectly by design because God wanted it in here. It's incredible. The God of the universe has made 66 book, 66 letters perfectly for us to know him. It wasn't that man just kind of came out of nowhere and said, this is what I want to say about God. I mean, we read about a lot of failures in here. I once heard a, a friend of mine say it like this. You know, how the, the, the word of God is, 
is completely different from any other religious text because it's all about a bunch of selfish men and how one selfless man brings redemption through their selfishness. I mean, you think about it. Who in their right mind would want to write about their selfishness? But yet what God does is perfectly inspire all of that to show us how redemption is possible. Okay, so maybe you're, you're here this morning and, and you're thinking, but Max, I've actually read the Bible a little bit and I know that there's contradictions. I've read the Gospels. There's this story in one Gospel, but not in another Gospel. That just doesn't make sense. Well, actually, it does make a lot of sense. Because different authors had different personalities. Different authors remembered different things and different details. Oh, but maybe you're saying, but it's been thousands of years since we've gotten this. Uh, uh, definitely somebody had to have, have uh, mixed something up here. We have so many different translations of the Bible. But yet, you're telling me that it's perfect? How is that so? Let me just tell you this. There are about 5,000 New Testament, New Testament manuscripts. Either in a whole or partial. 5,000 may seem like a little, but it's actually compared to older texts, it's, it blows them out of the water. Like the next one that they have is, is, um, is a, a book, an old book called um, Homer, um, or, or the Iliad, written by Homer. And it's about, there's only about 500 texts that remain. That's the next highest. So with the, the 5,000 texts that we have, both, both, both partial and full, believe it or not, there's a 92% accuracy rate. Oh, but you're saying, Max, I just, I just caught you. You said 92% accuracy rate. That means that there's 8% that there's an error. So that means that the word of God is not actually true. No, what it means is that when there was a scribe who didn't have their coffee in the morning, he, actually, he accidentally wrote two words, two of the same words down right in a row. Or he accidentally placed a period right here where there wasn't supposed to be a period or, or he was actually trying to, to, to uh, he actually flipped a couple of words. So the 8% that we have are just simply grammatical mistakes that don't interfere with the storyline or anything like that. I mean, this is incredible. 5,000 manuscripts and the only mistakes that are found are grammatical mistakes. I mean, shoot, if you were to come up here and, and, and read my, my paper, you would say, Max, every single word that you have is spelled wrong. <laughs> but yet God breathed out his word for us. Uh, one, one person says that, um, all scriptures breathed out by God means that it came out from the innermost being of God for us. This is the word of God. It is breathed out by God, but it is not only breathed out by God. Catch this. It says that it is profitable. Now, I know that I have a, a lot of smart people in this room, and so I, I probably don't need to explain what a prophet is. I'm not talking about uh, uh, 
pro- I was going to spell it, but then I was like, ah, there's too much room for air there. I might mess it up. <laughs> uh, not, not the type of prophet that goes around saying things like Elijah, but, a, but, but it gains a, a prophet. It, it, this, isn't, this doesn't mean that when you drive your new car off the lot that you're losing profit. No, it means that there's a value. There's an increase. There's, there's a benefit to the word of God that is breathed out. There is a prophet behind the word of God. It is profitable for us. It is profitable for me and for you. And so as you're sitting here thinking, my marriage is a wreck. I'm losing my friends at school. I've got big life decisions coming up and I don't know what to do. What Paul is saying that there is profit in the word of God. It brings value to your life. And so what are the, the ways that, that this profit happens? Well, the first way that profit happens is through teaching. Like I had mentioned before, we see that teaching is a consistent pattern throughout the history of the word of God. Not just the word of God, but through our time too. From the very beginning, as as God was forming Adam and then Eve, he tells them, be fruitful, multiply, subdue this earth. You have dominion over all. As Moses is on top of the mountain, what is God doing? He is preparing the Ten Commandments for Moses to go down and then teach his people. We look throughout Israel's history as, as Nehemiah is building the wall and then, and then Ezra reads the scriptures, the law to the people and the people just break down because Ezra is teaching them the word. There were the priests who would teach and handle the sacrifices for the people. You see Jesus' time. When Jesus steps onto the scene, he is constantly teaching people. Matthew 5, one of his longest sermons, he's teaching the people about the law. He's constantly teaching his disciples. We look when Jesus leaves, right away there's teaching that goes on. I mean, the teaching, I know some of you, well, maybe not, I don't know. Some of you may think that uh, my my. 40 to 45 minutes of preaching is long and and it probably is to some degree. But I mean, Paul was teaching people until they fell asleep and fell out of buildings and died. (laughs) I I haven't taught that long yet. (laughs) Saint Augustine, it's said, as I've been reading a lot about him, it's said that he would either preach on average for 30 minutes or an hour and 30 minutes. There is there's a reason why teaching this is so important because it it gives it gives profit to the person's life. As as the reformation is is happening and as history is going on there were the people called the puritans in England who would preach for about 3 hours at times. Because there's profit to God's word. Now, don't worry, I won't preach for three hours unless the Holy Spirit just really gets me going. But there is profit to the teaching. But when teaching happens, when teaching happens, reproof always follows. Now, what is reproof? Reproof is kind of like rebuking somebody. 
Reproof is telling somebody how they've messed up. How what they've been doing is wrong. This is the word of God for our lives. The law of God, the Ten Commandments are like a mirror to us. That show us how we've fallen short of the glory of God. Through the Holy Spirit, reproof happens in our hearts. Have you ever been just driving along one time, one day, and you just think to yourself, man, I just have not been a good husband to my wife. I need to step that up. Or, man, I've, I've really been short with my children. Or that co-worker, I avoid on purpose. And God calls me to love them. That is the Holy Spirit rebuking you. It's the Holy Spirit convicting you because it is showing you the law that you're to love God and love your neighbors. See, we don't like reproof. We don't like reproof because we don't like being told what we do wrong. See, we have no problem acknowledging, I'm not perfect. But then, as soon as somebody says, but you did this wrong, whoa, who are you to judge me? It's, it's a great confusion I have with people. I just don't understand it. But far too often I do the same thing. But yet, it's profitable for us. When God's word rebukes us, it is profitable for us. Because what then follows is correction. I love how Paul writes because Paul is not just flippantly just saying things. He is creating arguments and showing us how this is profitable. Because after you are rebuked, it leads to correction. Scripture does not just leave you feeling rebuked. Scripture just does not leave you feeling like you're a worm in the dirt and that you're no good. But instead, what Scripture does is it corrects you and puts you on the right path and shows you how to live an obedient, Christ-like life. In Paul's letters, you can see this play out constantly. As Paul teaches, he rebukes where there must be rebuke, but then he just doesn't leave them feeling worthless. He shows them and tells them, and this is how you are to live. And so there's profit in teaching and reproof and correction. And all of this is to train in righteousness. This is to lead us to be trained in righteousness. But I want us to notice something. Because this is important. This is very important. We can't miss this. Paul does not say this. And we can't, we, we can't miss this. It's, it's small words like this that far too often we, we gloss over and then we just miss, not paying attention to because we're kind of in a rush. See, Paul does not say this. He does not say all scriptures breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training to righteousness. No, Paul says that all of this is profitable for training in righteousness. 
Now, I'm going to hit on that in a little while, but what I want to do is now go back and warn us of these three things. If we solely and only approach teaching as mere intellectualism, we will become an intellectual snob that just knows a lot of stuff. Intellectual knowledge in the Word of God does not save you. It does not bring you righteousness. It can't. So if you approach Scripture as merely and only as, well, what are some gold nuggets that I can spew out at the next Bible study or tech time or when I'm around my non-Christian friends to make myself kind of look cool? Uh, that's, that's not how we should approach Scripture. This isn't the, the profit that we gain out of Scripture. That's arrogance, not humility. Teaching and knowledge will not bring you righteousness in Christ. It won't. You can know everything about the Word of God. Hey, there are atheists that know more about the Word of God than me. And yet they totally reject it. They reject everything in Scripture. Knowledge in Scripture does not bring you righteousness. Let's look at the next one, reproof. Reproof is a form of, of perfectionism. And, and I say this, and this one has two sides to it. Because a perfectionist loves reproof, but it also crushes them. Reproof. Let me, let me tell you a, a story. I, I, I once heard of... Uh, uh, an athlete, a, a basketball player. And hey, let me say this. If sports analogies fall flat, I'll stop them. Um, I, I will. I don't think this one will fall flat. I, I think it'll be helpful, but, but just let me know. There's a story about a, a, a player who, um, who uh, their, their coach gave this great pep talk at the beginning of the season saying, we're going to be a team of perfection. That's how we're going to do well, and that's how we're going to get to the championship and, and win. We're going to be a team of perfection. We're going to perfect the little things. And so after every single practice, this player would come up to the coach with a notebook and say, Coach, what can I do better? And so the, the, the coach would say, Okay, you can improve on this, 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 this. And the player would write it down. After every single practice, the whole entire season, Coach, what can I do better? Coach, what can I do better? Coach, what can I do better? The end of the season came... And the coach then had no idea what was going on. He just knew that this player would come up to him with a notepad and a pencil or, or a pen and write down the things that they could do better. And so the coach went out of his way afterwards and said, what are you, why, do you always, why were you always coming up to me with a, with a, with a pad and, and something to write with? And the player said, well, coach, you said you wanted us to be a team of perfection. And so after every single practice, I came up to you and I, I asked you where I could improve on so that way I could perfect it. And, and the coach looked at him and, and said, oh, that's, that's great. Can I see, can I see the, the, the paper? 
And so the, the player went to his locker room, uh, went to his locker, got the paper out for the, the coach, the, the pad, and the coach started flipping through all of these pages, all of these pages. But there was one thing that the coach noticed, is that the first three were crossed out. And so the coach asked, well, what did those three cross out? All, just the first three were crossed out, but the rest, like 50 pages or so, just had different notes, uh, different words, different things. And the player said, well, coach, these are the only three things that I perfected this season. Far too often, we come to the word of God thinking what, it, what the prophet is going to give us is perfection. When perfection does not bring us righteousness. Living a perfect life does not bring you perfection. And quite frankly, it'll crush you. Because you will always live up to standards that you will never meet. You will constantly be trying to please people that you will never please. And you'll constantly be wondering if you're doing enough for God. Perfectionism does not bring you righteousness. So this is the third warning, correction. So teaching, knowledge does not bring you righteousness. Far too often we think that our intellectual capabilities in the word of God brings us righteousness, but it doesn't. That's our our first warning. Our second warning is that far too often we think if we can just live a perfect life, then that's what's going to make me acceptable in God's sight. But but perfectionism does not bring you righteousness. And and thirdly, correction um, is, is a type of moralism that we then try to live. If I can look good on the outside and act as if I've got my life together, then my morals will carry me along in this life and that's what God will see as pleasing. I've been a good person. I've left a good mark on this life. I, 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 didn't, um, I didn't try to hurt society any, in any type of way. Instead, I've tried to contribute to society and leave it a better place. I volunteered at different places. I, I was trying to be a good moral person. I didn't try to get in any, any, any Facebook arguments. Because that's where most arguments happen nowadays. Uh, I wasn't a bad parent. I didn't go out of my way to hurt anyone. And so I I tried to just live this morally good life. But what Jesus calls those people is he says, you're like whitewashed tombs. You look clean on the outside, but on the inside, there's somebody dead in there. Because moralism does not bring you righteousness. But far too often when we come to the word of God, what we come to it as is either just merely knowledge-based, perfection-based, or moral-based. If I just know the right things and say the right things that I'm in, if I can perfect this, if I I can have a, a, a five steps to a better marriage, ten steps to teaching my kids how to live a good life, um, seven steps to a healthy bank account, whatever, then I'll be good. Or if I'm just a a good person. This is how we approach Scripture far too often. And this is the, the profit that we think we're supposed to get out of it. 
But it's not because those things don't bring me righteousness. Because what Paul is saying is that those are training me in righteousness. Here, let me, let me say it like this. Jesus paid for your unrighteousness so you could be trained up in his righteousness. What do I mean by that? Well, this is what I mean by this. See, this is all scripture is breathed out by God. We call this the word of God. Some of you may know where I'm already going with this. There was the word of God. In the beginning was the word. And the word was with God. And the word was God. And the word would become flesh. And what this word would do is this word, he would live the perfect life that you and I were called to live. And he would live it perfectly. He would be unjustly accused of things that he had never done. He would eventually be turned on by his own people. Even even his closest friends would abandon him at his darkest hour. And what this word would do is he would die for your unrighteousness. He would die for your lack of knowledge, your lack of perfection, your lack of morals. So that if you looked to him, so that if you believe in him, so that if you would put your faith and trust in his life, death, and resurrection, he would take your unrighteousness and he would give you his righteousness so that you could be trained in his righteousness. And this is incredible. This is incredible for us because what Paul is saying here to Timothy is, Timothy, you're no longer dead to sin. The the old man is dead. The, The new has come. You have been born again. You've been born again into a a living hope. And so because of that, you're like a, a newborn infant being trained. All of these things that that are done, that bring profit, the teaching, the reproof, the correction, all of these things are the same things that Sharice and I do with Haddon right now. Haddon is a human being. At least I think so. Sometimes I'm I'm not too sure. (laughs) Sometimes I think he might be just a screaming superhuman. Um, But, I mean, he goes over to the garbage. He opens up the garbage lid. He disgustingly puts his mouth on, on, on the plastic bag. We tell him, Haddon, you can't do that. That's gross. We pick him up. Right? We're teaching him. We're rebuking him. We pick him up and say, now go and play. You've got far better things to play with than garbage. And then we correct him. Because we're training him to be a human being. Normal human beings don't go over to the garbage and put their mouth on it. And so we're training him to be a human being. And this is what Paul is saying right here. Because all scripture is breathed out by God. And is profitable And because you've been born again, you are now like an infant. 
And so you need the scriptures, the word of God to train you up and to teach you. To bring rebuke to your life. And to correct you. Because you weren't made to play with the garbage. You were made for so much more. You were made to resemble the son, Jesus Christ. And so this is why instruction is so crucial for the Sunday service and for every day of your life. This is why we we preach through the word of God because all scripture is breathed out by God. And it's profitable for teaching, for reproof, and for correction. Why? Because when we heed instruction and when we take it serious, it's training us up in righteousness to be more like the Son, Jesus Christ. Because that's who we were created to be like. And I just want to briefly hit on verse 17. Because when we're being trained up, the, the people of God then are being completed. When you are being trained up in righteousness, then you are being perfected. And you're being equipped for every good work. This is why you can't find righteousness just in knowledge. This is why you can't find righteousness just in perfectionism. This is why you can't find righteousness just in morals. Ultimately, the profit it leads to is loving God more and loving your neighbor better. Ultimately, what it leads to is being more like the son, Jesus Christ. Jesus paid for your unrighteousness so that you could be trained up in his righteousness. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that you have, not only that you've put your spirit in us, not only as if I say that so, so flippantly, Father, thank you for putting your spirit in us and thank you for giving us in, uh, uh, your word to instruct us, to live by. And so what I ask this morning is that we would take this serious, that, that as we leave here, we would, we would take the word of God, we would take instruction serious. We wouldn't be people that just come to try to consume just to get more knowledge or become a more perfect person or become more moralistic, but that we would want to be instructed to be trained up in righteousness. And sometimes it is hard, but the hard um, times bring profit. Your whole word brings profit, like it says. And so we thank you and we trust you. We pray this in your son Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.